Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Knife Talk is sponsored by Even Heat, the manufacturer of the finest knife heat treat ovens available. Find your next heat treat oven at evenheat-kiln.com. So welcome to another episode of Knife Talk. Now today we've got a guest who does something just a little bit different. So she makes cutlery and corsets. It's Grace Horn from Grace Horn Designs. Welcome to the show, Grace. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, we finally got there. We've had to reschedule this a few times, haven't we? (laughs) (laughs) It's best laid plans and all that. Exactly, exactly. So I'm just going to jump straight into it and, and, and just say that, you know, I think you, your work is amazing. It's, it's extremely varied, probably more so than any other guests that I've had on the show. So for those that are not aware or they haven't really seen your work, could you describe it to us? Give us that 60 second elevator pitch. Oh, you see, that's, that's hard, isn't it? I thought this was your job. I'm going to have to <laughs> figure this out now. I started off, oh, when I was looking for a degree, I was trying to decide whether I was going to do textiles or metalwork. Um, I grew up in a textile household, and I decided that it would be easier to study metals and keep textiles as a hobby than it would be to do it the other way around. Mm. And then, uh, so I did my degree down in South Wales, and I was looking for a final project, and I settled on the idea of making folding knives. Um, and, you know, most people, they start off making fixed blade knives and work up from there. No, never bothered with that. My first, my first knives were three folding knives wow. with Damascus steel. Not just one, three, two. No, three <laughs> and out of Damascus steel. So I had to teach myself to, uh, to make Damascus steel and then try and figure out how to make a folding knife. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, I actually contacted Sheffield and asked whether there was anybody around who, who would be able to teach me. And uh, this was the Cutler's Hall. And at the time, they said that there wasn't anyone which was fine. So I figured it out myself and made two, uh, no, made three approximately knife-shaped objects, really. They were, <laughs> they looked fine, but they, yeah, the mechanism, I hadn't got my head around that at that stage. Um, then I heard um, a radio broadcast um, about a girl, old guy called Stan Shaw, who um, at the time was in his early 70s. This was 25 years ago. And uh and he was making knives in Sheffield. And with the complete arrogance of a 22-year-old, I thought, ah, I shall up my life and move up to Sheffield to become his apprentice. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, so that's straight from university? Um, I took a year out. Right. But, so, yeah, it was a year after. And uh, he reckoned he was too old to take on an apprentice. <laughs> so he gave me a whole load of little um, old forged blades and springs and told me to go away and figure it out because it wasn't that hard. <laughs> That's very nice of him, but geez, not that hard, really. Not that hard, I know. <laughs> Bless him, he he did he did put up with me asking questions. And a few years ago, he said, "Do you know I should have taken you on then because you'd have been useful to me now." Because <laughs> he's still making knives. He's you know late nineties now. Wow. Um, and he's retired, but he still he still makes folding knives. 
Jeez. So, I mean, Sheffield obviously has such a rich history of, of making steel. Are, are you still able to get local steel there? Well, it's not so much the local steel that is important to being in Sheffield. It's the culture. It's the fact that I have small engineering works. It's the fact that um, my heat treater, um, his wife used to be one of my daughter's teachers. It's the fact that people pass by my workshop window and they tap on the window and they say, oh, my aunt used to be a buffing girl. Um, and, you know, people will bring me knives that their grandfather made. And the culture is still there and it's still really important. Yeah, I mean, where I am here in, in, in France, there's very much a knife-making history here as well. So I assume mm. Sheffield is very much the same. But I'm just interested in what you said about going to South Wales for university because that's where I'm from as well. I can so, tell. So, wow, such a, <laughs> such a small world. So was that a Cardiff uni you went in? Yeah, but it was actually in um, Kellyan. So just outside oh, Newport. But right. it was part of Cardiff University, yeah. Yeah, I think they've rebranded now to South Wales University, I think, yes. Oh, I'm so. sure they have, after Kelly and had the highest rate of female alcohol dependency in Europe while I was there. <laughs> I, but I had nothing to do with it. That wasn't me. I wasn't skewing the balance. Uh, I was thinking, are you taking credit for that or, <laughs> or the blame? <laughs> <laughs> so so let's, let's talk about your work. I mean, blades and bras. I mean, how did that happen? So you said one was a hobby, um, but I mean, it seems as if your work now it does sort of rely on both. Yes, I don't actually see that there's a huge difference between them, to be honest. They they certainly cross-fertilise, so I end up with knives with um, female forms and um, maybe it doesn't work quite so much the other way. I don't think I, I end up with bras and corsets with knife forms. <laughs> But certainly the female form is quite important and it's all engineering as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, the amount of kind of detail and structure that goes on in making structured undergarments, it just appeals to my to my detail, to my, yeah, to my finicky little kind of an <laughs> engineering mind. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, it's great. I, it, and, and I'm a terrible procrastinator. So... I divide my year into two halves. Um, this is now, strictly speaking, corset season. Um, <laughs> it's like grouse season, only more exciting. Um, yeah, so it's corset season, and um, I'll make corsets and bras now, really, up until the end of the year. And then, again, after Christmas, I flip back over to making knives and scissors. But, you see, I don't do that. Basically, what, what happens is I procrastinate and I think, oh, I should be making mm, this corset project. And instead, what I do is I go down to the workshop and I, <laughs> and I make some scissors. Or, or if I'm meant to be making scissors or knives, then I procrastinate and I'm thinking about something, so I'll go and do some sewing. So whichever <laughs> one that I should be doing, I'm thinking about the other. And, and it feels like it's... Um, a means by which I can have a little bit of downtime without being unproductive, which is really clever. Yes, actually. very <laughs> clever. So yeah, you can be creative even when you're when you're skyfing effectively. Yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Nice. So I mean, you mentioned scissors there. So I mean, I've been looking at looking at your work again today, and some of the scissors that you do are fantastic. They're they're basically functional art, aren't they? They could be museum pieces. Yes. Yeah, I've, I've fallen down the rabbit hole of scissors quite heavily. Hmm. Hmm. I'm, I'm just wondering, actually, in the UK, 
I mean, scissors, it, do they have the same laws applying to them as, as knives? Because obviously they're blades. Yeah, no, they don't. And they don't have any of the stigma either. Yes. And although this looks like it's a really clever kind of uh, marketing strategy that, that you know, if, if knives are becoming um, more and more problematic, finding other means mm. to do similar work you know scissors would be ideal in fact it didn't happen that way it was no, in no way was it a conscious shifting it's just something that i've realized in hindsight um i actually started making scissors to go into my knives so i'd made a couple of folding knives with um a little pair of scissors in them and they worked fine but i realized that if i if they hadn't have worked i wouldn't have known why they worked or how, why they didn't work or how to have corrected it. Hmm. Hmm. Um, That's very James Bond as well, isn't it? Having a sort of folded knife away somewhere. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's kind of like a gentleman's version of a Swiss Army knife, isn't it? You know, hmm. that you have all these different bits on. But I was making my own steel and I still do that. And I wanted to have um, a pair of scissors that was from the same steel that I'd made the blades from. So... I had to go and learn to make scissors. And in fact, in Sheffield, there was a, an old company, there is an old company that still hand makes scissors. Um, it's Ernest Wright and Son, and um, they're, they're wonderful. Yeah, they, they still, I, I went down, I worked with them over, over a summer, and I only wanted to make the little scissors, but they wouldn't let me get away with that. So um, they made the most of me being there and taught me how to make all of their scissors, right up to like 13 inch tailor's shears. Wow. Wow. Almost, um, and, almost and gardening shears at 13 inches. Yeah, yeah. Well, there'd be professional tailor shears at that stage. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't be it, – it's not really for the domestic market at all. Hmm. Okay, okay. So um, it's clear that you appreciate sort of traditional design. And, and I'd say that your work seems to have some sort of Victorian influence. Is that intentional? Um, it's not intentional, but I'm not surprised. I collect old silver fruit knives and also quirky, quirky scissors and, and other things. I think that the, what, the Victorian age, visually, I like the Georgian period. So uh, pre-Victorian, I, I find it crisper and cleaner, particularly on the slip joint knives. But what I love so much about the Victorian era is that, A, they weren't, afraid to experiment. So we have a huge amount of innovation that's going on as far as designs go. But also they didn't they they didn't believe in generalizing. So you have specialist tools for specialist jobs. Um, and that is an incredibly rich seam of history to tap into. Hmm. And I love that, that one tool for the one job. I spent half my summers here in France going around the what they call Vide Greniers, which are these almost car boot sales. And just, mm. and just look at the old tools, trying to work out what the hell they're for. <laughs> you yeah. know, some of these tools, yeah. they're 100 years old and, you know, the industry doesn't need them anymore. Yeah. Um, but they're made so so beautifully, some of these things. Yeah. We've slipped down the the track of um, assuming now that you just get a, a kind of generic pair of scissors mm. and they will do for every job that you ask them to. You know, you you rarely go into a shop and you go, okay, what I'm after is a paper cutting pair of scissors, or a a tweed wool cutting pair of scissors. You know, we we assume that one pair of scissors will do everything, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm slowly slowly 
um, seducing people to the way of kind of fun and interesting scissors. Mm. So, so who are your customers? They, they differ. So it depends on the shows that I do. So really the big pieces, they are for um, collectors of knives primarily. Some people have bought them who collect metal objects per se. So, you know, they might collect um, sculpture as well, um, rather than just specifically within the knife-making community. But I also make a special effort to produce um, at least a few knives a year, a few scissors a year, that uh, are priced so that people will buy them and use them. Mm. Mm. And is that important to you as well, that they are being used? Yes. Yeah. As, as a as a creative person, the tendency is to to get more and more complex in the pieces that I make because I like the technical challenge of doing something new, doing something exciting, and it gets more and more intricate. And of course, what that means is it just gets higher and higher price on on the final piece. Mm. Um, so yes, it's it's important for me to maintain the balance so that they I might do a couple of a couple of extraordinary pieces a year. But actually, I don't want to become a manufacturer, but I, I still want some of them to be accessible as tools and be yes, used. Yes. Okay. So you, you mentioned shows, which I assume are very important for your marketing. Um, and you're recently at, at Blade. So how did you find that? It's great. So busy. The trouble is I sold out within the first couple of hours. So, <laughs> I, I mean, the, the trouble, I mean, the trouble is it's not a trouble really, is it? Yeah, it's what you go for. But yeah, I see what you mean. It's... <laughs> It's a lot of times just sitting there handing out cards then, I assume. And I, but I love talking to people. Mm. So actually, it, it's great. It takes the pressure off and it means that I can just enjoy engaging with people and, and talking to them about projects that I'm wanting to do. I always take my sketchbook so I can talk about things. And actually, a couple of people this year brought things to show me. People who I didn't know, complete strangers, said, I, I knew you were going to be here, and I've just got this something I want to show you. And I just thought that was lovely. That is that lovely, yes. Yeah, very, very nice. So, I mean, shows are, as you say, it's one of the things that you do for your, your marketing, you know, to, to get yourself out there and get your work out there. Um, what, are, what other ways do you, do you get that work out there? Because, I mean, what you do is very niche. It's, it's very different to, you know, most sort of bladesmiths out there. So how, yes. how do you let the world know? Uh, through the wonders of Instagram and Facebook. Mm. Um, and what, what happens is at the beginning of the year, what I try and do is every year I make a new project. So it, it's a body of work that's different from the previous year. Um, and sometimes it can be radically different. And sometimes it's just an incremental change on something that I've done previously. But what I do is at the beginning of the year, I start putting up um, sketchbook drawings, um, kind of inspiration, and, and start kind of thinking about what it is that I'm wanting to do, or at least start showing people because actually I have to plan my work 18 months in advance so I know what I'm going to be doing for this for the next blade show I ha I have a pretty good idea about what I'm going to be doing because I've already made the steel for it so it, spontaneity doesn't even enter into it does it so um after Christmas I'll start posting pictures and mood boards that sort of thing and then as a pro as a project 
kind of goes through, then I'll, I'll do work in progress pictures and people start engaging mm. with what I'm doing. And what I've found is that people don't realize that they really wanted a bespoke uh, autopsy kit. <laughs> but suddenly... They didn't suddenly, need one, but they may want one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I, I create a desire for my work right from scratch, which means that by the time uh, Blade Show comes, which is the kind of the primary show that I do, um, yeah, people are already primed to want the things that I've produced. That's some sort of voodoo. That's crazy. <laughs> it is. And and it's completely accidental because, you know, I'm I'm notoriously bad at things like marketing and and sales and that sort of thing. I'm just appalling. But what I really like doing is engaging with my audience. Mm. And I just, I love it. I love when people ask me questions and I, you know, and they get kind of start talking to me about the, what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. Um, yeah, that's wonderful. That makes it all worthwhile. Brilliant, brilliant. So, I mean, a lot more people are sort of making stuff now, aren't they? So I bet a lot of your followers are people who maybe haven't made stuff in the past, but they're seeing you make stuff and they think, well, maybe I'll have a go at that, you know? Yes, absolutely. And there is, of course, there is this crossover between textiles and scissors. Hmm. So they don't seem like such a hugely kind of disparate set of interests anymore. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who are, who are sewing actually really like having tools where they know where they've come from. So the provenance is known that they, they're supporting other makers because, you know, they, that's something they want to get pleasure from the tools that they use. And that's not just, um, so in, it's um, not just the case in tailoring and, um, kind of, yeah, dressmaking, but it's true in a lot of crafts. I think that people are becoming more and more, um, invested in the tools that they use. Yes, yeah. And, you know, we're in this golden age of learning as well, aren't we, where there's so much information sort of readily available to learn yeah. from. That, you know, yeah. it's, it's, we've never seen this before. No, it's quite extraordinary. It does make it hard, though, because it means that you have to filter through so much. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of rubbish out there too, but, um, yeah, a lot, a lot of good stuff. So, so you mentioned you make your own steel. Um, is that do you have a forge in your studio, or do you do you do that outside? How does that work? No, I generally make it at friends' houses or friends' forges, hmm. um, and that means uh, a couple of things. I don't have the room in my workshop. My workshop is tiny. It's a converted public toilet. Um, <laughs> do you still get knocks on the door asking if there's a room free? That no, not anymore. But I did when I first opened. Actually, the sweetest thing was when I was doing the work on it, there was, I'm, I'm between, I'm in the perfect location, okay? I'm between a school and a pub, and I'm opposite a sandwich shop. I mean, you can't really get much better than that. But when I was doing the building work, there was, and the scaffolding was up, there, somebody put a letter through the door and said, please be a sweet shop. And I just <laughs> You're going to be devastated when you find out. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I assume, though, that that was from a school kid rather than somebody coming out of the pub and really hoping that I was kind of just going to be able to sell them. Yeah. A, a kebab shop or a sweet shop. That's, that's yeah. what was needed. <laughs> so tell us about some of those mistakes that you've learned from over the years. Um, maybe they can help our listeners. 
that's a horrible question. (laughs) I do an awful lot of planning before I start. Um, Having said that, I just, the last project that I did for for this Blade Show went completely tits up. I mean, it just, it broke completely. The the week before, I was just finishing it. And, you know, it's one of these things. Okay, so the, it was, it was a little pair of scissors, and in the scissors was uh, two knife blades. In fact, it was a knife blade and a stitch on pick. And then under the scales, there was a needle case and a little awl, little poker. Um, and the stitch on pick and the blade were are, are basically like slip joints, so that they have um, little springs that run on the back. Now... This was an extraordinary project because what I was trying to do is make the entire thing out of one piece of steel. So you can see the pattern going all the way across the layers and uh, go because it's a piece of twisted steel. And it, it was an incredibly complex piece. And I thought, <laughs> I was disassembling it, and I thought, do you know, the the spring on the on the stitch unpick, no, on the blade, is just a little bit on the soft side i'll just tap it right now i have i had done everything at this stage it was etched it was looking gorgeous it was all gold and um and black and white it was superb a lovely piece tapped it in the spring broke oh. <laughs> oh, oh. I, can't, I can't remake that spring because it has to be from that piece of steel in that position otherwise there's no point in me doing it oh, wow. so yeah okay uh hint and tip to uh to people listening if it's okay leave it right <laughs> don't fiddle <laughs> yeah don't hit it with a hammer for luck it, that doesn't work oh geez I, i'm sitting uncomfortably just hearing that story <laughs> <laughs> hundreds, hundreds of hours of work oh wow yeah not, not good at all not good at all. i did actually dry assemble it because so many people have been following it on facebook i haven't had a failure like that for years nothing's catastrophic as that um and so people have been following it on facebook for months and uh, so i took it to blade anyway to show people <laughs> and probably one of the only people that well that was the only thing left on my table was that something not for sale because it was in, in the <laughs> <laughs> so so you've been you've been lucky enough to work with others and to learn from others as you've already mentioned any, any golden advice that you've been given that you sort of carry with you daily? I think that it's to be open to other ways of working. So, you know, if you, if you, see, if you have the opportunity to go and work with an allied trade, like an engineer, or, or see, see one of these processes being done, if you get the opportunity to see somebody doing heat treating, then jump at the chance, even if you don't think you'll ever do that yourself, because it all adds to the body of knowledge that you can bring back to your own making. Mm. Yeah, very good advice, actually. I mean, I've just taken some time with, back in the UK, visiting a few factories to see how they how they make knives in, you know, huge, huge quantities with these mm. big sort of laser cutters. And it mm. just really opens your eyes to see, wow, you know, I didn't realise this, this machinery existed to begin with. Yeah, yeah. I went to Bo- I went around the Boca factory hmm. um, uh, about six months ago, and that was fascinating. Not not only were they not only was it fascinating to see how they were making um, their modern 
knives, but it was also interesting to see how they were making their traditional looking slip joints as well. And what, what um, manufacturing, what machinery they had to keep in order to get the feel that they were after. Let's talk about one of our sponsors, Tormac. To get great razor-sharp and repeatable edges, you're going to need a Tormac. To find out more, go to Tormac.com, which is T-O-R-M-E-K.com. Okay, let's get back to the show. So I've got, I'm a real sort of gearhead. I, I love sort of machinery and bits of equipment, that kind of thing. Do you have any bit of machinery or equipment which you just couldn't live without? You, could, you couldn't do the job without having in your studio? Files. And files. And files. Right. I, I have two grinders, neither of which work. I don't use a grinder at all. Wow. I hand file everything. I have a surface grinder, to be fair. Right. I, have, um, I think that I would struggle to, to do slip joints hmm. and scissors as well um, without a, a surface grinder. But, uh, yeah, files. But, you know, a good file. You can do anything. And when I hear people going, oh, I don't have the equipment, I think you you just get yourself some good sharp files and give it a go. Wow. I'm currently doing a build-along. So um, Jeremy from Simple Little Life, who has a YouTube channel, um, he's a great knife maker, but he's doing a build-along where he's going to be making, from a file, he's going to be making a simple kiridashi uh, mm. with simple hand tools um, with files. And it's something that I haven't done probably for six or seven years. So I've started that this week, and already you just realise I haven't got the arms for this. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just say that I don't have a gym membership. <laughs> you don't need it, exactly. No, upper, upper body strength is all there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what's on the, on the shopping list for gear, for machinery? Is there anything that you, you desperately want? Yes. Okay. This is actually, it's quite an opposite question because I have just got myself a shopping list. I have just got myself a bandsaw. Hmm. Well, I've got myself, because I'm always tight for step space, I've got a mobile bandsaw and, um, you know, like a tube cutter. Oh, and, I see. Yes, yes, yes. And I've got a table for it so that I can rig it up because, because that's all I need. Everything is so small. Hmm. Um, so a steel bandsaw, yeah, but I've just got that, but I haven't, I haven't set it up. I know that's quite appalling, but, um, it's in the box and it's been in the box for the last four days. I haven't got it out. Mm. It doesn't make much of a geek really. Gear. <laughs> um, I, ha I haven't got one myself and I have been looking over the last few weeks for one of those actually. Yeah. But, um, the, the one I've got, it looks like it's going to be really good. I'll let you know. I'll is it the Milwaukee one? The, the, the red uh, one? Yes. And then one of the guys on UK Blades has, is, does does a frame for them hmm. to you know to turn them into a standing oh, thing. Very handy. Yeah, which is kind of good. Um, and then the other thing that um, I'm I'm getting, I'm in two minds about this. I want a micro forge. Having just said that I don't forge in the workshop, <laughs> I do want a micro forge because um, I want to start doing small, small forging, really small forging, like needles. Small wow. Small. I know. Wow. I know. And, and things like tweezers. So although I've got the material already in quite a small dimension, hmm. maybe four millimeters, three millimeters in diameter, um, I'd like to start, yeah, you see my small, when I say, oh, I'm working large this year, everybody laughs at me because they know that my idea of large is not their idea of large. <laughs> um, 
so I'd like to do some tiny little forging of, of things. Just, just I think, so yeah, that's going to be a new thing. I'm, I'm in two minds about it. Um, I haven't. I've had a look at some of the YouTube videos on making a baked bean can. Hmm. For, but I think I, I've, I've got this lovely English gin tin, <laughs> which, is, which just seems to be begging to be made into a, a forge. Hmm. I um, think for something so small that would be perfect. You know, just yeah. line it with your with your cement and, and your. Yes. Way. Yeah, I think so too. So I'm quite excited about that. Cool, cool. You'll have to put lots of pictures of that because I'm sure there'll be yeah. many people very interested in that. <laughs> Mainly interesting, interested in whether I've drunk all the gin before I start, <laughs> which, which I have actually. I just kept the the tin. It's from a couple of years ago. You know how you keep stuff and you think, oh, there'll be a job for that at some point. Hmm. There you go. Yeah, coffee tins for me. Old coffee tins. I got, really? I got lots of them. I think oh, I'll use that for something one day, and you know. They just end up littering the place. But, yes. Tobacco tins. Tobacco tins are just godsend. Mind you, the one I've got, uh, it's a chewing tobacco, I think. They're plastic tins, but they are plastic tubs. Uh, only a few inches in diameter. They're round. But they have a secondary, like, lid in the, in the lid. Mm. So, And I think that's for you to, disgusting, it's for you to spit out the oh, tobacco. <laughs> I know, I know. A tin spittoon yeah, um, but what that means is that you you have a big container with with a screw top that you can store big things in, and then like washers or tiny little things you can put in that top container. Very They're nice. new. I don't know where I got them from. I got like <laughs> twenty of them. I think somebody gave them to me. They're great. I think that's the thing when when anybody has a workshop. They start sort of collecting things, thinking I'll use that one day, and you know, as I say, it's just littering the place up. Yes. So, Though I do have to be, I have to be good about that because I don't have room to do too much of that. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so I do. They, the, the stuff that I accumulate does tend to be small. So what sort of size is your studio? Is it? Um, well, the back space. So I, I have an upstairs. You have to get get to it via a ladder. But okay. So the front bit where I work mainly is two meters by one meter, and that has window out onto the street so that people can see in as they're passing by. And, and kids get tap on the window at the end of the day and get lifted up to see what I'm doing, which is honestly. <laughs> and then the back area is three metres by three metres, and then upstairs is four metres by four metres. Right, okay, so it's fairly split up then, the space. Yes, yeah. Mm. And what I've got, I've got the drill and the milling machine and, and the little forge area hopefully out in, in the in the back in a three meter by three meter one upstairs i have my my two cobweb catchers otherwise known as grinders <laughs> and uh my surface grinder and that sort of thing that has a little bit more light because uh, being an old victorian building it doesn't have a huge amount of many windows i guess you don't want windows in a public toilet yeah and, and also for you know for grinding as well I, I tend to move my grinders away from the window Mm -hmm. um, just so I can light it artificially, so I don't get shadows, that kind of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. So let, let's finish with the same question that I ask everybody on the show, which is, whose work are you loving at the moment? Who really inspires you? Hayley DeRosier. What? Do you know what? I sent her an email yesterday asking her to be on the show. That's spooky. Really? Really, just, oh, just, just yesterday. She's wonderful. I mean, she's a lovely person anyway. Um, and we're really good friends, 
but her work, yeah, I find that really inspiring. She's doing amazing things with keyhole handles, mm. and they're just and her her Damascus is second to none. In fact, I'm just working on uh, three scissors at the moment made of her steel, and I'm really quite excited about that. that they should be superb. Brilliant, brilliant. So who else? Anybody else at all? Um, in the UK. I like Guy Stainthorpe's work, actually. Uh, very crisp and uh, very unlike the sort of work that I would normally do, but I like, I like that. Um, Steelmaker, Ed Shemp in America, is a little bit obscure, but uh, he does good stuff. Yeah. Chad Nichols. Chad Nichols is another steelmaker. He, uh, that I like, he has very clean material to work with as far as actual makers go hmm. yeah aesthetically there are some there are some scandinavian guys that are doing really interesting work as well hmm. were, were there many at blade um people from sort of scandinavian countries there at all yes not many of us from britain really yeah not many ah i, I was at Coutelia, which is a sort of a knife show here in, in france um, and there wasn't a single Brett exhibiting. I was really surprised. And yeah. it, was, it was a huge thing. It was, it was a massive event. Mm, I know. I do par the show in Paris in September. Mm. Um, I do Fix, which um, is in the middle of September. And that's a lovely show. Um, yeah, I think I'm the only British exhibitor there. So things, things will have to change. Things will I have know. to change. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Grace, for taking the time out. Um, really, it's my pleasure. Really do appreciate it. I mean, basically, it's my way of just learning off people. And if other people can learn at the same time, that's perfect. That sounds grand. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And hopefully we can speak again soon. Yeah, lovely. Okay, then. <laughs>